0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Author James Joyce said, quote, He is the man more than any other who has created modern prose and intensified it to its present-day pitch. It was his explosive power which shattered the Victorian novel with its simpering maidens and ordered commonplaces, books which were without imagination or violence. I know that some people think that he was fantastic, mad even, but the motives he employed in his work, violence and desire, are the very breath of literature. End quote. Joyce was talking about the great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, author of many celebrated novels, including his masterworks Notes from Underground, Crime and Punishment, and The Brothers Karamazov. We'll be exploring the life and works of this sensational writer today. On the history of literature. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. What a time it is to be alive! We've wrapped up Thanksgiving here in America, given all of our thanks for the year. We're all thanked out, (laughs) exhausted by thanks. I wonder why we don't just have thanksgiving. Wouldn't that be a little easier? Such a great idea. I'm not sure why no one's thought of it. Instead of running around thanking everyone, we could just sit still and be thanked over and over. Maybe next year. In any case, I had a good holiday, and I hope you did too, for those of you who celebrated it. Speaking of thanks... Boy, am I ever thankful for today's author, Dostoevsky. What a great person he was. Let's tackle an email or two, and then we will... Excuse me. Excuse me, there seems to be someone at the door. Ah. Oh, who is this? Oh, music sounds like an angel. Hello, I'm Emily Dickinson. Oh, Emily. I've written a poem in honor of that impudent scallywag... Jack Wilson. I guess I'm flattered. Here it is. My life has stood a loaded gun in corners till today. I listened to his podcast and sent him some
1: money. Won't you please support the cause of literature in the arts?
0: Ah, oh, Emily, you are such a good poet and such a good friend. I'm so glad you stopped by today with that poem. Frankly, a little bit awkward poem, one of your more commercial efforts, but I do appreciate it all the same. If you'd like to help support the show, listener, you can head on over to patreon.com literature and sign up for a small monthly contribution via your PayPal account or credit card or just go to historyofliterature.com shop and make a one-time donation buying me a virtual coffee, or as many virtual coffees as you like, or in honor of today's guest, maybe a nice virtual vodka. I could use a bottle or four. This week, we're thanking new patrons Daniel, Matthias, Frank, Connor, Jane, and Juliet. Some very literary names in there. My thanks, as always, to all of our Patreons, as well as all our virtual coffee buyers. Your support is very much appreciated. Here's an email we got from Allison. Subject, History of Literature Praise. Dear Jack, I've only been listening to the podcast since about August, beginning with the travel books episode, and I have to say, I'm hooked. As a high school student in rural Kentucky, there's not a whole lot of talk about classic literature, or even what classifies works as literature. So I have been listening to the podcast to sort of get my fill of book talk. I just wanted to thank you for opening up new doors of discussion about not only what it means to be a reader, but also a member of the human race, which really involves reading and learning and understanding the world around us, does it not? I can't wait to see, or listen rather, which subjects future episodes will be about. Sincerely, Allison. Well, thank you, Allison, out there in rural Kentucky. Boy, I have to say... I can identify with you as a rural high school student since I was basically one myself living in a rural village for the first 18 years of my life. I'm glad to have you on board. And yes, I agree that I'm not particularly concerned with what it means to be a reader, except that I've found that it is the best window I can find into being a member of the human race. I expand when I read, and I hope you and my other listeners do too. That's what literature can do for us. One more from Connor. Hello, Jack. Recently, discovering your show has been such a bright spot in my life, and the fact that you did a recent episode on Marx completely sold me. The center in which my life revolves around is literature slash philosophy. I get paid to be a bookkeeper, but my life can be described as a book reader. At work, when I should be entering clients' data into QuickBooks, I am researching authors' or what book to read next. First episode I listened to was The Greatest Night of Kafka's Life, and I loved it, so I started over from episode zero and listened to a couple of the beginning episodes. My commute to work is now much greater than it has been. There are so many episodes I want to skip ahead and listen to, but I am trying to go in order. So this leads me to a few of my favorite authors I will request to be done in future episodes. And again, I have a lot of catching up to do, so take your time. (sighs) Ha ha (laughs) excuse me, ha ha. Episodes I will be anxiously waiting for, David Foster Wallace and Dostoevsky. And one less obvious but has become my favorite is Roberto Bolaño, specifically his masterpiece 2666. Let me know your thoughts on future episodes regarding these authors, but regardless, I look forward to exploring your past episodes and future episodes. Connor. Thank you very much, Connor. I'm glad you're filling in time with literature, even as you're filling in data into QuickBooks. Thinking about literature and philosophy, even as we deal with the humdrum of daily life, is a way of keeping us sharp, if not sane. And those are some good requests, because guess what, Connor? Your ship has come in. David Foster Wallace and Roberto Bolaño are both favorites of Mike, and they are both TBD. And Dostoevsky is right here, right now, today. We're about to begin his incredible life story after this. It's difficult to overestimate the power and influence of Dostoevsky's greatest novels. Virginia Woolf said, quote, "Out of Shakespeare there is no more exciting reading." End quote. Kafka said Dostoevsky was a blood relative. Nietzsche and Freud were both influenced by him. Freud thought the Brothers Karamazov was the most magnificent novel ever written. Nietzsche had a more fraught relationship with Dostoevsky. In his early writings, he loved him. He said he was, quote, the only psychologist from whom I had something to learn. He ranks among the most beautiful strokes of fortune in my life, end quote. Later in his career, Nietzsche railed against Dostoevsky, calling him a Jesus figure and saying he was decadent. That might get at the two main sides of Dostoevsky. On the one hand, he's a bit out of control. He plumbs the depths of human nature. The men addicted to gambling, the men who are willing to kill an old woman, or maybe it's the side of all of us capable of murder or of empathizing with murderers. On the other hand, Dostoevsky was a Christian. His father's side was full of priests, and his own father was supposed to be one too before he veered off course and became a doctor. Dostoevsky himself veered between these two extremes, the debased and depraved and the holy and redeemed. Nietzsche, of course, preferred the former to the latter. We talked about Tolstoy's view of Dostoevsky in our Tolstoy episode, how he avoided meeting him, and later described how overwhelmed he was when Dostoevsky died, that he hadn't realized how important a figure Dostoevsky had been to him. Tolstoy was found reading Brothers Karamazov in his final days. Chekhov was influenced, of course, and Hemingway, and the Beats and just about everyone else who came after. Philosophers and literary critical theorists were also under his sway. Existentialism claimed Dostoevsky as one of their great forerunners. Mikhail Bakhtin cited Dostoevsky as a literary innovator who changed the course of the novel through his use of multiple voices or polyphony. His books have been translated into more than 170 languages, an incredible number, and made into many operas and films and television adaptations. But my favorite examples of the impact of his books come from contemporary sources, people who read his work at the time and sought him out and said, Do you know what you have done? Do you know how you've changed everything? Do you yourself know what does a writer say to that? I guess so. (laughs) I guess I do. But let's combine his works and his life, which are equally astonishing. Here are his novels and novellas. Pay attention to the years. 1846, his first novella came out, Poor Folk. Also in 1846, The Double, Eighteen forty-seven, the landlady. These are all novellas. Eighteen forty-nine, he had an unfinished book, Natasha Nevanova. In eighteen fifty-nine, he publishes the village of Stepanchikovo. Eighteen sixty-one, humiliated and insulted. Eighteen sixty-two, the House of the Dead. Now we're getting into his peak period. Eighteen sixty-four, Notes from Underground. Eighteen sixty-six, Crime and Punishment. Eighteen sixty-seven. The Gambler, 1869, The Idiot, 1870, The Eternal Husband, 1872, Demons, also called The Possessed and The Devils, 1875, The Adolescent, and in 1880, The Brothers Karamazov. Did you notice anything interesting about those dates? Let me read off his short stories. Again, listen for the years, 1846, Mr. Prokarchin. 1847, Novel in Nine Letters, 1848, Another Man's Wife and a Husband Under the Bed. (laughs) It's a good title. It's actually a merger of two stories, Another Man's Wife and a Jealous Husband. Combined into one story, Another Man's Wife and a Husband Under the Bed. 1848, A Weak Heart, 1848, Polzunkov, 1848, an honest thief. You hear how prolific he is in 1848. He's coming into his own. 1848, a Christmas tree and a wedding. 1848, white knights. 1849, a little hero. 1862, a nasty story. 1865, the crocodile. 1873, Bobok. 1876, the heavenly Christmas tree also called The Beggar Boy at Christ's Christmas Tree. 1876, A Gentle Creature. Two more. 1877, 1876, The Peasant Mary. 1877, The Dream of a Ridiculous Man. What do we hear in that chronology? What do we have? We have a jump from 1849 to 1859. A writer just coming into full flower. His work, Poor Folk, made his name and reputation, and then ten years of nothing at all. Writer's block? Sadly, no, that would have been preferable to what happened to Dostoevsky. Instead, he faced a firing squad, was sent to Siberian prison camp for four years, and forced to serve in the military for six more. What kind of criminal was Dostoevsky? He was punished for being a reader. A reader. That's almost not an exaggeration. Here's what happened. In 1846, Dostoevsky's novel Poor Folk came out. It was a social novel and was very popular. He was now a literary figure, and he wrote some more, and he was running in some literary circles, including those calling for reform. He was in one such literary circle, so he could use its library on the weekends. The people in the group believed in freedom from censorship and the abolition of serfdom. And they read works by critics and utopian socialists. Now, that's fine for us, right? We believe in ideas, freedom of speech, freedom of thought. Don't we, you and I, think that exchanging ideas helps to make society better? That someone might make a proposal, someone else might argue against it, and the best idea wins. That's fine for you and me. You and I are not the Tsar of Russia. For the Tsar of Russia, the word reform sounded like the word revolution. And the word revolution, especially in 1848 and 1849, which saw some turmoil in Europe, which could very well spread to Russia. Ideas were dangerous. And cracking down on ideas and those willing to speak them out loud has its advantages for an absolutist ruler. It scares people. It chills their desire to advocate for reform. And so Dostoevsky and eight of his fellow literature lovers were investigated and eventually sentenced to death by firing squad, by the Tsar and some others, including a man named Ivan, whom we will return to later in our story. Remember that for now. Ivan, the person on the commission that sentenced Dostoevsky and the eight others to death. They were brought to St. Petersburg and taken to Semyonov Place and put into three groups of three. The executioners stood waiting with their guns. And then, just as they were about to fire, the word came in. The Tsar miraculously had commuted their sentence. What a generous, magnanimous person. That's sarcasm. The Tsar has sentenced them to death in the first place and he didn't exactly set them free. One of them went insane on the spot from the experience. The others were sent to Siberia for four years of prison camp labor then six more years of military service. And so we have this 10-year gap in the life of a writer, one of the greatest writers Russia has ever produced, a man who died at age 59. 10 years just subtracted as he was treated like a murderer. 10 years of the harshest, hardest life experience imaginable. Who was he before? Who was he after? And how did any of this make its way into his greatest works, which all came after this 10-year gap? We'll have that story after this. Dostoevsky's family had had a long-standing association with rebellion. In 1389, a Tatar defected from the Mongol leadership and allied himself with an early Russian prince, the first who openly defied the Mongolian Empire. It was a good bet. The descendants were rewarded with land, including a village called Dostoevo, which is where the family took its name. A few hundred years later, the Dostoevskys were famous for being priests. Dostoevsky's father, Mikhail, broke the chain, running away from home and becoming a doctor. He married a woman named Maria. They had eight children. Unlike many of the other authors of the day, Tolstoy and Turgenev being two examples, Dostoevsky did not grow up wealthy and had to scramble for money all his life. He blamed the haste and the deadlines for some of the sloppiness in his novels, which are often uneven, and some of them almost unreadable. He also developed a nasty gambling habit, which didn't help. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Dostoevsky's father was a military doctor for a while, and he worked at at a hospital for the poor after that. He became a kind of government bureaucrat, which gave him some status and allowed him to afford an estate a hundred miles from Moscow, where the family spent some summers. But Dostoevsky, who was born in 1821, mainly grew up on the grounds of the Hospital for the Poor, mingling with the patients as he played in the hospital gardens. His parents loved stories and literature. He had a nanny who also did. At an early age, Dostoevsky was immersed in fairy tales and legends, and it wasn't long before he was into heroic sagas and epic literature, such as those written by Cervantes and Sir Walter Scott, and Homer. He also read Pushkin, Schiller, Goethe, and the gothic fiction of Anne Radcliffe. He loved it all. He was somewhat sickly and delicate, although he was also irascible and could have streaks of stubbornness and even a kind of violent temper. He was known as a dreamer and, quote, over-excitable romantic, end quote. Those are the quotes from his teachers. Qualities that carried through the rest of his life. A few youthful incidents were profoundly influential. Once, a drunken man raped a nine-year-old girl, and young Dostoevsky was called upon to go get his father to help her. He was haunted by this incident and returned to it often in his later writings. He was also sent to a boarding school. At one point, his father had gone into debt to pay the fees, but his classmates at the boarding school were all from aristocratic families, and Dostoevsky felt out of place there. This too was a feeling that he carried with him. The feeling of being an outsider, a dreamer, a climber, someone down in the dirt, and the lover of literature. He got started as a translator, Balzac, George Sand, Schiller, and others, and then he came to write Poor Folk. This novel made his name immediately, and he invented a new kind of character for Russian literature. After he wrote the book, he took it to a friend who took it to the literary critic, Belinsky. It's a new Gogol, the friend said. And Belinsky said, eh, with you, it's always a new Gogol. (laughs) You must think they grow on trees. But this time, Belinsky read the work, Dostoevsky's work, and got excited too. He ran to Dostoevsky and said, do you have any idea what you've done? The innovation that he was describing will strike us as very natural, even obvious. But it will also show how modern Dostoevsky is. Gogol's story, The Overcoat, is about a copying clerk who has all these misfortunes happen to him. He's a comic figure, but he lacks self-awareness. Dostoevsky's innovation is to make the copying clerk self-aware. It's a novel of letters, an epistolary novel, and the narrator, who's also a copying clerk, describes his agonies of humiliation as he writes letters to a young and poor girl who is about to marry a rich but ultimately worthless man. In other words, we see the psychological effects of poverty not just the material effects. That was Dostoevsky's innovation. And that's Dostoevsky in a nutshell, the psychological effects inflicted upon or or suffered through by the dregs of society, the forgotten, the abandoned, the botched and bungled, the prisoners, the murderers, the guilt-ridden, the overlooked, the schizophrenic, the addicted, Reading Dostoevsky is like looking at paintings by Goya or the films of Bergman. There's a kind of deep understanding, not just of happiness or unhappiness, the gentle vicissitudes of life, but the extremities. The laughter that's out of control, laughing that you can't stop, that comes from somewhere deep within you that emerges almost like the symptoms of a disease. Darkness. That drives you towards suicide, except that suicide itself isn't even dark enough to match how you feel. Murderous impulses, and not just alluded to, but deeply explored. Not just imagined, but felt. There were a few more books and stories. Before he was accused, spent the eight months in prison, the mock execution, and the big gap in writing that we described above. And then after the experience in Siberia and the military service, the 10 years of subtraction in the worst human conditions on earth, basically, he returned with a vengeance. One of his earliest successes after he returned was the house of the dead. Now he was writing from a position of extreme experience. He had spent several minutes imagining his death as he faced the firing squad, being right on the verge of it. And, of course, he'd spent those years in the prison, which then became the source for his book, The House of the Dead. It describes the horrors of prison life, including the filth, the degradation, and the awful brutality of the guards. He was there with criminals, child murderers, among others, and at the mercy of sadistic guards. It's a chilling book to read. Tolstoy thought it was his masterpiece. Although the Russian intelligentsia was now viewing Dostoevsky as a person of importance, he didn't love them in return. He thought they were condescending. As he viewed it, they tried to impose their ideas from above. Instead, he himself was drawn to the goodness of the common people. He also became very Christian, which he shared with his beloved common people, a simple faith, or at least he admired their faith. For Dostoevsky's faith was more complicated. He was naturally skeptical. He once said he thirsted for faith like parched grass. And then once he said, if someone proved to him that Christ wasn't real or true, he would rather remain with Christ than remain with the truth. He also started having epileptic seizures when he was in prison. No one can say for sure what caused this or the extent to which his imprisonment may have exacerbated his illness. Freud had some theories that it was psychological, but we know now that Freud was basing that on erroneous information. We do know that the seizures bothered him for the rest of his life. He had one on his honeymoon with his first wife, shocking her and setting the tone for the rest of their unhappy marriage. We're in 1864 now, Dostoevsky is 42 years old, and he starts writing the works that we consider his masterpieces today. Notes from Underground is a shocking piece of literature, an attack on the beliefs of the day by a bitter, unnamed narrator. I love this book. It's probably my favorite of all of Dostoevsky's works, which is saying a lot considering how much I love Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov. It's worth reading and rereading for the story, for the voice, and to consider how much it influenced twentieth century writers and the whole field of existentialist philosophy. Here's the first paragraph of Notes from Underground to give you a flavor of the voice. Quote I am a sick man. I am an angry man. I am an ugly man. I think there is something wrong with my liver. I really know nothing at all about whatever disease I might have. I don't consult a doctor for it, and never have. Though, funnily enough, I have a respect for medicine and doctors. I am extremely superstitious, which has made me respect medicine. I am well-educated enough not to be superstitious, but I am superstitious. No, the problem isn't medicine. I refuse to consult a doctor out of sheer spite, You might not understand that, but it makes sense to me. Of course, I can't explain what I think my spite is accomplishing. I am fully aware that I cannot somehow punish doctors by not consulting them. I know better than anyone that by all this, I am only injuring myself and no one else. But still, if I don't consult a doctor, it is thanks to my spite. My liver is bad. Well, let it get worse. End quote. How great is that? I am a sick man, an angry man, an ugly man. I think there is something wrong with my liver. I read that sentence, that opening, at age twenty, and was hooked for life. On this man, Dostoevsky. I think there is something wrong with my liver. What a great opening! And then, my liver is bad. Well, let it get worse. There's contradictions all through this paragraph. I am well educated enough not to be superstitious, but I am superstitious. Or I'm, you may not understand that, but it makes sense to me. Or I can't explain what I think my spite is accomplishing. I am aware that I'm injuring myself and no one else, but even so, I'll do it. It's those impulses, those warring impulses of ideas and actions. When you know something is wrong, but you do it anyway. The addiction of a gambler, which he described over and over so well. That feeling that you know this isn't the right way. This isn't the the way to put my money down. This isn't the way I should risk everything. And yet, something in me compels me to do it. That's Dostoevsky. That's humanity. He says... My liver is bad. Well, let it get worse. We're scraping the bottom. Well, then let's not just scrape, but let's dig. Let's see how bad this gets. Let's see how low we can go. Let's see where misery ends, if it ever will. Let's not just peer into the abyss. Let's dive in and see what happens. It's magnificent, but it's also kind of chilling. I read Anna Karenina and I feel like I'm in good hands. Tolstoy can take me wherever he wants. He'll show me whatever he wants to show me at whatever pace he chooses. It's like being on those guided tours where you sit on a bus or a boat and the tour is carefully plotted out and you hear exactly what you're supposed to hear. They tell you, turn your head left or turn your head right over there. You will see this and you see exactly what you're supposed to see. It's a charming way to receive information. I like tours like that. Dostoevsky is different. He's like boarding one of those tour buses. But the driver is half crazy. He accelerates forward and everyone lurches from one side to the other and starts screaming. And you don't know exactly where you're going to go because this guy's capable of anything. You might try to climb up the side of a mountain. You might go sailing off a cliff. You might come screeching to a halt as the narrator stops for a baby that crawled into your path. Your driver is as likely to end up in tears of relief and joy as he is to laugh maniacally as he takes you all to hell. We should give these novels their own episode, each of the rest of them, so I'll just go through the basics here. Crime and Punishment was published in 1866 and tells the story of an intellectual named Raskolnikov who decides to murder an old pawnbroker woman. The murder itself is breathtaking and hair-raising. It's suspense at its most extreme, both psychologically and physically. And then what happens when the detective starts knocking? Do you stick to your ideas justifying the murder by saying, hey, extraordinary people like Napoleon and Caesar have always done this have always imposed their will on others, even if it meant death and destruction. They, through their superior being, have the right to do it. Or do guilt and shame and suffering set in? And if you're superior to the woman, are you sure you're superior to the detectives who are closing in or the society that condemns your actions? It's a book everyone on the planet should read. It's truly one of literature's highlights. It's not a perfect book, but the stretches of greatness in it are unsurpassed. Dostoevsky. Next, he wrote The Gambler in 26 Days, one of those jobs he did to pay off debts and make a deadline. He had the help in this one of a 20-year-old stenographer, and he ended up marrying her. We have some letters from her. She described, she described Dostoevsky's appearance like this. Quote, He had light brown, slightly reddish hair. He combed his hair in a diligent way. His eyes were mismatched. One was dark brown, and in the other, the pupil was so large you couldn't see the color. The strangeness of his eyes gave him a mysterious appearance. His face was pale and looked unhealthy. End quote. The eye we know was injured. My guess is it was injured during his time of imprisonment. This description comports with Dostoevsky as a kid, a, a kid, kind of a a mangy dog, lurking on the outskirts of society, leaning and hungry and unlovable, almost scary, definitely not reassuring, but also fascinating, and. Kind of exciting. His books, The Idiot and the Demons, came next. As I mentioned, it's also called The Possessed or The Devils. Those are also good. They take on topics like goodness and morality it's suicide and politics. They're second-tier, Dostoevsky, but only just so. You can read them after you've read The Big Three. They're worth your time. And then, finally, the Brothers Karamazov, which most people consider his masterpiece. This one has all his favorite themes, the origin of evil, the nature of freedom, and faith and our desire to have faith. This is the story of a vicious father who showed no real signs of love toward his four sons. When he's murdered, the sons are caught up in a tangle of arrests, blame, recrimination, and a search for redemption we see that you can feel guilt for desiring death of someone else, even if you haven't caused it. We have four distinct brothers here, including a monk-like figure, Alyosha, and an illegitimate epileptic, Smirjikov. Dmitri, the oldest, is passionate and a kind of rival to the father, and he's arrested for the crime based on circumstantial evidence. The book is full of beautifully framed questions, and deep philosophical and theological searching. Here's a passage when the other brother that I haven't mentioned, Ivan, speaks to the saintly Alyosha. Quote, The centripetal force on our planet is still fearfully strong, Alyosha. I have a longing for life, and I go on living in spite of logic. Though I may not believe in the order of the universe, yet I love the sticky little leaves as they open in spring. I love the blue sky. I love some people whom one loves, you know, sometimes without knowing why. I love some great deeds done by men, though I've long ceased, perhaps, to have faith in them. Yet from old habit, one's heart prizes them. Here they have brought the soup for you. Eat it. It will do you good. It's first-rate soup. They know how to make it here. I want to travel in Europe, Alyosha. I shall set off from here. And yet, I know that I am only going to a graveyard. But it's a most precious graveyard. That's what it is. Precious are the dead that lie there. Every stone over them speaks of such burning life in the past, of such passionate faith in their work, their truth, their struggle, and their science, that I know I shall fall on the ground. And kiss those stones and weep over them, though I'm convinced in my heart that it's long been nothing but a graveyard. And I shall not weep from despair, but simply because I shall be happy in my tears. I shall steep my soul in emotion. I love the sticky leaves in spring, the blue sky. That's all it is. It's not a matter of intellect or logic. It's loving with one's inside, with one's stomach. That kind of passage is hard to beat, and yet Dostoevsky has passages like these through all of his best works. We rise and fall with our heroes, with our villains, and with our author. He himself rose and fell as he tried to make sense of an unkind world. When his child died of pneumonia, aged three months, he wept uncontrollably. His sobs emerging, sounding like a woman in despair, said his wife. Dostoevsky was alive to the world. He felt it hard. So there we go. Our author doomed, desperate, an overexcitable romantic from the time of his childhood to the time of his death. A man whose soul was full of pain even before life put the screws to him and ratcheted up the stakes. What do we make of him? Nabokov complains about Dostoevsky, says he's uneven. As a novelist, the sublime is too often surrounded by the sloppy. He's full of cliches. He has whole stretches of bad writing. Dozens of pages, says Nabokov, a literary wasteland. Remember the Ivan who tracked Dostoevsky down? The one I told you about? The one who helped put him before the firing squad? His full name was Ivan Nabokov, the great-great-uncle of the famous author. Nabokov's always had it out for Dostoevsky, it seems. And fine, I'm not here to defend every sentence of Dostoevsky, or even every page, or even every novel. Maybe he is ragged, and maybe he's feverish, and maybe he comes across as nearly mad. Sometimes he writes... In a kind of out-of-breath way, like a Houdini willing to gulp air and sink to the bottom of an ocean, chained and shackled, before fighting to free himself and emerge on the surface again, gasping and sweating and screaming for help. A yacht. Here's his cry. It's the S.S. Tolstoy. Beautifully decked out. Perfectly seaworthy. Smooth and unsinkable. It barely changes course as it passes by the floundering and flailing man imprisoned by the water. That's our ocean here in the history of literature. We have some yachts. We have some speedboats, We have some planes that fly 20,000 feet above, miles from water. And we have a few crazy divers. Everyone in this last category who takes the plunge is following Dostoevsky's example. Some might be as brave, and some might be more skilled, but very few of them ever go as deep. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed this look at the great Dostoevsky, certainly one of my all-time favorites, one of the great human beings who ever lived, let alone great novelists. In that category of the greatest novelist ever, he's on a very, very short list. We'll be back soon with more History of Literature goodness. In the meantime, you can support the show at historyofliterature.com dash, no, slash shop. Let me say that again. historyofliterature.com slash shop and patreon.com slash literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.